0: From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. As COVID-19 surges in North Texas, county governments, city councils, and school boards across the area started to mandate masks last week in defiance of an executive order by Texas Governor Greg Abbott prohibiting such mandates. Plus, a couple weeks after he was elected, we hear from the newest member of Congress, Republican Jake Elzey, who won a special election runoff over Susan Wright to represent Texas's 6th Congressional District. The seat was formerly held by Wright's husband, the late Ron Wright, who died early this year after contracting COVID-19. And amidst all this, the state legislature is still in its second special session. Texas Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, a Republican from Beaumont, signed warrants to compel House Democrats to return to the state capitol. Enough Democrats have been gone from the capitol to prevent a quorum since the first special session started in July. To discuss all this, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers will be joined by Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins, Representative Jake Elsey and SMU political science professor Matthew Wilson. Before we get started, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the Lone Star Politics podcast. It helps us grow the show and helps other listeners find us. A district judge on Tuesday upheld a temporary restraining order filed by Dallas County against Governor Greg Abbott. The next day, County Judge Clay Jenkins issued a countywide mask mandate, which covers public schools, colleges, and universities, childcare centers, and commercial entities. On Thursday night, the Denton City Council followed suit, passing a citywide mask mandate by a 5-2 margin. In an executive order, Abbott banned mask mandates statewide, saying it was time for Texans to use personal responsibility to slow the spread of the virus. This week, COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations in North Texas reached numbers not seen since February, as UT Southwestern reports that the Delta variant accounts for 95% of new cases in the area. Abbott said in a statement last week, quote, any school district, public university or local government official that decides to defy the order will be taken to court, unquote. Abbott was invited to appear on Lone Star Politics this week, but declined. Here's Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins with Julian Gromer.
1: Judge, thanks so much for being here.
2: Great to be here.
1: The governor's challenging this order. If he is successful, what are your plans?
2: Well, we're going to talk to our public health uh, folks, our business folks, our schools, and, uh, you know, go from there. Uh, But right now, the important thing to remember is we all are on team human being. We need to protect one another, protect ourselves. We need to know about wearing a mask. And right now in Dallas County, you're required to do that uh, indoors in most settings. And so, uh, you know, people are doing that. There hasn't been much problem with it. It, it's a mask, folks. It's it's not the end of, of liberty. It's the uh, hopefully helping us get to the end of COVID.
3: Judge, after we've been through so much, why do you feel it was so important to bring back a mandate?
2: Because the doctor said they needed the time to get the capacity up in the hospitals. Gromer, we are out of pediatric ICU beds as we sit here today. That means that for any reason, if a child needs an ICU bed, car wreck, COVID, heart heart condition, uh, we're going to have to carefully them to some other region or even other state. Or some kid who's on the ICU is going to have to get better or die, um, for that child to have a bed space. It's not much better in um, our adult hospitals. And, and so what's happened is, when Governor Abbott got rid of the temporary staffing for our hospitals. That knocked down some nurses and doctors. Then headhunters came in because the other states kept their temporary staffing going and lured away some of our doctors and nurses for higher paying traveler jobs. And finally, people that are burned out and they're taking early retirement. So right now, you've got less doctors and nurses per patient than at any time in, in you know modern history here in North Texas.
1: What do you say, Judge, to businesses that are frustrated and people who are confused with orders changing?
2: It it is frustrating, and what I would suggest to you is to follow the science. In times like this, we're all on team human being. The enemy's not each other. The enemy is the virus. And the leaders that we need to listen to are the doctors who have trained their entire adult lives for this. Many of whom are right here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Some are at the CDC. They're all saying the same thing. For us to have our best chance to defeat COVID, we need to keep getting vaccinated at a higher rate We need to wear our mask indoors. So in your business, protect your customers, protect your employees, and make sure people are wearing masks in your business.
3: How long do you think uh, that this mandate will stay in place?
2: Well, hopefully um, it won't be overturned uh, by uh, the courts and, and it can stay in place until our doctors have the capacity to be able to provide the sort of care people are used to in hospitals. And our COVID numbers are moving in the right direction. Uh, look, I don't like wearing a mask. It's hot outside. It's, uh, you know, it's hot going into the store. But it's a small price to pay to save lives and keep our economy going. If, if we want to really cripple our economy, the way we do that is to get that COVID surge uh, uh, even more out of control than it already is. If we want to strengthen our economy and save human life, we'll listen to the doctors.
1: Let's turn to schools now, Judge. Some districts have mandated this, but not all, a lot of tension surrounding the issue. What do you say to parents, teachers, and superintendents?
2: Well, what i would say is I just told you there's no pediatric ICU beds left. We've never had more kids in the hospital fighting COVID uh, here in North Texas than we do today. Um, So kids are affected. And also kids uh, are carriers back to their parents. And the people that are in the adult wing of the COVID units now, are around 20 to 40 years old, mostly. Guess what? That's the parents. So if we don't keep those kids from getting COVID and we take this through all the families, then we're gonna lose our opportunity for what we as parents all want. And that's our kids to have that in-person learning experience, to see their friends, to be able to socialize. They need that, but we've got to, to do it safely. Look, the kids are okay wearing a mask. This is a uh, political stunt Uh, by a few people on the far right wing of our society, Um, but kids are okay. If you tell kids they have a dress code, that's what they do. Tell them to wear a mask, that's what they do. And we wanna keep our kids safe and we wanna keep your families and our teachers safe. So everybody, please do your part.
1: Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you.
0: Jake Elsey was elected to his first term as a state representative just last November. Now he's representing Texas in Congress. To many observers, Elsey was a surprise winner in the special election runoff to represent Texas's sixth congressional district, defeating Susan Wright, who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Elsey outraised Wright among small donors and earned other endorsements from former Texas Governor Rick Perry and Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Houston. Elsie is a former Navy pilot who ran in the 2018 Republican primary to represent this district, but was defeated by Ron Wright. The district has been held by a Republican since 1983. Here's Elsie with Julian Gromer.
1: Congressman, thanks so much for being here.
4: Thanks so much for having me. It's good to see you, Julian Gromer.
1: Good to see you as well. Now, right now, the House is in recess. You told me right after the election, your first goal was to get your offices and staff up and running. How's that going?
4: That's right. It is uh, it is going pretty quickly. I'd like it to go a little bit faster, but it takes time, and especially when you have to go through the federal government. Unbeknownst to me, uh, they released all the staff from Congress- Congressman Wright's office on election night. So we've had to start from scratch, but I'm working very well with uh, the former district director, Andy Nguyen, and uh, working with him and my new district director, Julie Lewis, is working really hard to find three new offices, maybe four, and uh, and we're hiring very, very quickly. We've got uh, at least one caseworker on board, and uh, we've got our, our Washington staff going as well. So I could I would always like it to go faster as a fighter pilot, but this stuff does take time, and I, I would suggest that by the middle of September, we should have a fully staffed uh, district uh, grouping of three offices and the people of the district will be w- very well served by the people we're hiring.
3: I was welcome to Congress. Here's your empty office without staff, huh? <laughs> That's but, correct. Uh, yes. Representative, what is uh, the, the your number one issue, the first issue that you want to tackle when you when you get going in Washington?
4: Well, my personal issue is going after uh, making sure that our veterans are taken care okay. of. I think it's it's an auspicious timing that is for the last year so the about a fall much like it did like Vietnam did in 1975. uh, We've got to take care of better care of our active duty military and veterans and I would like to see legislation that would would uh, prevent the DOD from releasing any active duty military veterans or military until they have been uh, received their disability rating. With respect to the first votes that are coming up though obviously we have some votes that we're going to be called back for that we're going to have to address as well but Right now, with the spike in COVID, I think you could also say that uh, with the consternation that we have throughout our country on how to handle the COVID spike, securing our border right now, when we know that many of those folks coming up uh, have the Delta variant, uh, then then we have a, a bunch of different fronts and issues that we need to tackle simultaneously.
1: And how exactly, first of all, do you know that these people crossing the border have the Delta variant?
4: That's that's a good question. I did read today that uh, 40% of the folks that had just bussed into Laredo uh, this week uh, had the Delta variant and they were putting a stop to the buses continuing on. So uh, the, the Delta variant did work its way up from Central and South America and since the people who are coming up are not coming from Mexico, they're coming from Central America uh, and they're bringing a lot of that Delta variant with them so We have a problem within our country of spikes. We're also flying a lot of the folks that have been apprehended throughout our country after they've come out through here. They're not being tested for COVID, so we know that that is spreading it throughout the country. I can't give you exact numbers, nor would I proclaim that I could, but uh, we do have a crisis of COVID spike, uh, and and we're trying to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, But uh, a border that that is as porous as ours is right now, and even Secretary Mayorkas admitted yesterday that this is not a sustainable glide path to be on and we have to do something different. So those are his words, not mine. And it's going to continue to be a problem.
3: Representative, when you uh, uh, when you get there, uh, when you first start, when you vote, you're going to have to vote on the new infrastructure plan uh, passed by the Senate, presumably. How do you plan to vote?
4: I'll be a no on the infrastructure, uh, the infrastructure bill. We just spent six trillion dollars on COVID relief, much of which has been unspent. That $6 trillion that we spent also increased our national debt by a total of 30%. We are now at 102% gross GDP as, uh, uh, of debt. We haven't seen those levels since 1946 after the Great Depression and World War II. We are also on an unsustainable debt glide path, which we can't continue to add to. And as the Democrats have said, they're not just looking at the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. They're coupling it to the $3.5 trillion budget outline. So that's $4.7 trillion we simply don't have. So I will be a no on both of those, as well as raising the debt ceiling.
1: Okay, now as you know, you were a former representative in the Texas House until very recently. Democrats have bro- broken quorum to avoid voting on an elections bill. They're pushing Washington lawmakers to pass federal voting rights legislation. Are you in favor of that?
4: no ma'am and the reason for that is is that it very specifically states in the constitution that's a state function there is no business that congress or the federal government has in running elections in spite of what everybody might tell you that is specifically a state function it will always remain that way and if even if they tried to pass this bill it would wouldn't uh it wouldn't withstand supreme court scrutiny so absolutely not that is strictly a state function
3: uh congressman as you know as you well know the former president Uh, Donald Trump back your opponent, Susan Wright. Have you uh, spoken to uh, the former president since the election?
4: Interesting thing is uh, on on, uh, the next morning as I was driving down to Austin uh, to uh, to go back to uh, to my job as a state representative until I was sworn in as a congressman. I did receive a very cordial call from President Trump. He was very complimentary. And uh could not have been kinder and uh and gracious in, in wishing me uh congratulations for, for the victory that I had. And and that's uh that's that's uh that's that was a remarkable thing to hear as I was driving down to Austin uh just uh, a few hours after the election night victory and I was grateful for his call. I also received calls from Senator Cruz and Senator Cornyn and and former Vice President Pence too. So it was really nice. It was it was a great day uh for us.
3: And you told them all I told you so, right? Well, <laughs> i'm that's, sure that's the first that's thing you uh, said hi
1: i told you so <laughs> congressman jake elsey thanks so much for joining us
4: thank you all for having me good to see you
0: a special election to fill elzy's seat in the texas house will be held august 31st eight candidates have filed to run five republicans one democrat one independent and one libertarian we finally make our way to austin and focus on the special legislative session Many lawmakers are still at the Capitol, but as of Friday, the state House lacked a quorum. House Democrats fled the state last month at the start of the first special session called by Texas Governor Greg Abbott in an effort to kill the GOP-backed elections bill. Some of the Democrats who left are still in Washington, while others are back in Texas, just not in session. SMU political science professor Matthew Wilson is back to discuss what could happen next at the state Capitol.
1: Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's talk about where we are right now in the legislature. I mean, there's still no quorum. This has been going for a week now. I mean, what happens from here? Do you really see state troopers going out and arresting lawmakers?
5: At some point, that could happen, because I think that the patience of the governor and the Republican majority in the legislature is starting to wear kind of thin. Uh, Of course, nobody wants that outcome. That would be unprecedented historically and would would really be chaos. Uh, But at some point, what we need to look for is a face-saving gesture. Is there something that Republicans in the legislature and that the governor could offer to Democrats some type of concessions on this bill that would get them back into Austin, allow both sides to save face with their bases and break this impasse and allow us to move forward? And I'm not sure that we're at that point yet
3: and I'm not sure that Democrats are at the point given the process and how it works where you know bills are in both chambers and then they go on conference committee and then typically the conference committee presents the final product you know what happened during a regular session that final product was so different than the the bill that Democrats basically compromised on in the house that it left them no choice so I don't know if the trust is there for Democrats uh, yet uh, we'll see. But you're right; there has to be some sort of olive branch. And uh, what do you think, though? You think that the Republicans really want? I don't think they want to arrest black or Hispanic members either. I think I do think that's a last resort because that's a victory for Democrats, right, uh, in the public relations battle.
5: I, it is. I mean, the public relations with regard to this gets gets really complicated because, on one hand, it's it's a bad visual for. Uh, legislators to be arrested, particularly minority legislators to be arrested. On the other hand, it's from the Democratic standpoint, it's a bad look to be continually refusing to do your job. And so both sides, if they play this right, can kind of spin it in terms of a public relations advantage. But things could also go off the rails for both sides, too. So it's a really kind of delicate dance as to who would come out ahead in the court of public opinion.
1: I mean, do you think that they're talking? Uh, is there are there factions that you think are talking here?
5: I'm sure there are back channel discussions. Uh, there ha- there have to be channels of communications open, and my hope would be that responsible leaders on both sides have talked about okay, what's the exit strategy here? How could we come out of this where both sides appear to have done what they could reasonably be expected to do from the standpoint of their political bases. And I think that's what we're looking for here. Is there an outcome that allows Democrats to tell their base, hey, we fought the good fight, we did everything we could reasonably do, and that allows Republicans to tell their base, we stood firm, we didn't give in to Democrats' outrageous you know, intimidation t- tactics and abandoning the state. Uh, and that, that allows political victory for both sides. That's the formula that I think we're searching for right now.
3: So when they get back and they will, Democrats will eventually go back, how quickly uh, do, do the wounds heal, do the hurt feelings heal? And they get past this and and, and get back to work on other things. And you know, redistricting is up, which, Matt, Matt, that's another Uh, contingency. Redistricting,
1: I think, is this the easy round before redistricting? (laughs)
5: Well, I mean, let's remember, historically, it was redistricting that precipitated the last out-of-state fleeing of Democrats, right? Back after the the 2000 2000 census, the redistricting that followed that prompted Democrats to flee the state to Oklahoma, to New Mexico. So, yeah, that's going to be extremely contentious. That's going to be coming up. I think um, in terms of how quickly the relationships can be repaired, a lot depends on how this ends. If it ends with people being dragged back to Austin by state troopers, that takes a lot longer to heal and to overcome than if it ends up with a voluntary agreement reached where Democrats of their own volition come back to work. So in terms of how long it's going to take to repair things, uh, the end game is I think very important.
3: So what should we be looking for? Give us a, a you know, a redistricting. I don't know how closely you you looked at the preliminary uh, data, Uh, but in Texas, uh, does Republican dominance continue for a while? What should they look out for in drawing these maps? Because if you remember 10 10 years ago, I think they kind of got too greedy, drew at least state legislative maps that gave Democrats a chance to break through. And now you see the margin in the House is much closer than it was.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think the big question in drawing and evaluating these maps uh, for Democrats and Republicans both, but more Republicans because they're going to control the process is whether 2020 was the new normal or whether 2020 was kind of an anomaly. So when you're drawing districts, do you assume that suburban areas continue to move against Republicans, continue to be divided or even slight majority Democrat? Or do you assume that with Donald Trump no longer on the ballot, that those suburban areas return to their more Republican voting patterns? Likewise, when you look down in the Valley, do you assume that border counties are going to be the 75, 80% Democrat that they've been in the past? Or do we think that those gains that Republicans made down in the Valley are enduring? and that those are now closer to 50-50 counties. Um, Those are open questions, and we we really won't start getting answers to those until 2022 and 2024. But of course, we've got to draw the the maps and draw the seats before then. So there are definitely some uncertainties about how to think about different constituencies around the state and what their voting patterns are gonna be going forward.
1: Matthew Wilson, SMU political science professor, thanks so much for joining us today.
5: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. We'll check back in with you for sure.
0: Thanks to Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins, Congressman Jake Elsie and Matthew Wilson for joining us this week. Stay up to date with everything Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.